Some of the commands of the Bible are well known for being exactly that. For example, you shall not bear false witness. That's got very Bible-y sound to it, doesn't it, right? You hear that, you're like, oh, that's the Bible. Yeah, that has that Bible-y sound. It's got a Bible ring to it. You shall not bear false witness. Nobody really goes around today talking about bearing false. You bore false witness against me. No one's talking like that, but we know that language because it's the language of Scripture. It's been part of our culture for centuries and centuries. Some of the commands of the Bible are well known and they sober us the moment that we hear them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. That's sobering, right? It catches us. We think, ooh, this is, this is serious. Some of the commands of the Bible are well known and they seem especially difficult to live out. We hear them and we think how difficult they are to actually live out. For example, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, actually it would be this way if the right cheek is getting hit, turn to him the other also. Turn to him and, and offer the other cheek, your left cheek. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 39 and 44. But the Bible also contains commands that some might describe as checkout lane commands. They're the checkout lane commands. Think about the items that you find at the end of your shopping experience, right? You're in Walmart or Fry's or Aldi or somewhere. You're getting your groceries. You get to the end, to that checkout line, and there's things there like gum and mints and candy and magazines and lip balm and gift cards. You guys know what I'm talking about? All sorts of weird things up there. These are usually the little things that may catch your attention for the seconds or the minutes that you're standing in the checkout lane. They may be the things that you buy every once in a while, but most of the time we think of them as something extra. And every once in a while, an extra kind of thing. It's a pack of gum, right? It's not a steak. It's not a salad, right? It's not a big bag of rice that you're going to be cooking, you know, every night. It's not a, a, a cake from the bakery. It's a thing of breath mints. It's Tic Tacs. In our time together this morning around God's Word, I'd like us to consider three commands that some may be tempted to treat as checkout lane commands. Checkout lane commands. Why is that? Because they are small and seemingly simple and we find them at the end of our trip through First Thessalonians this morning. Specifically that book this morning. So turn there if you haven't already to the very, very end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. His first letter preserved for us in Scripture. That would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to this young church. To these new followers of Jesus in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. That's why the book's called Thessalonians because the town was called 
Thessalonica. Paul wrote us a letter. He might write to the Buckeyans, right? <laughs> First Buckeyans, because we live in Buckeye. So this is the Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica. And if you recall from last week, I mentioned to you, based on what we know from Acts 17, this church was maybe 8 to 10 weeks old at this point. Very new, very new faith for these believers. So what do we see here? Sit back. Now, sit back. Get comfortable. As I read through this passage, I know I have kind of a syrupy voice, and I don't want you, as I'm reading this passage, to to just get lulled and kind of drift off, right? Get ready for it. Are you ready? Paul calls them to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Anybody asleep? Wow, yeah, we're actually done. It's done, the whole passage. I just read the entire passage. I'm going to read it again. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Wow. At first glance, you look at these verses, these short verses, they seem very straightforward, don't they? They seem very simple, don't they? And in one sense, they are that. But just because something is simple from one perspective, that doesn't mean it lacks depth. Would you agree? Doesn't mean it doesn't lack depth, and it doesn't mean it's easy. Just because we understand it doesn't mean it's easy. That's simple and straightforward. A command that's clear to us, that's simple and straightforward in terms of what you and I are called to do, that kind of command may still be very difficult to actually live out. You may get it, but... How you get it, what it looks like in your life could be a different story altogether. So let's do this. Let's explore the depth of these simple commands by thinking about three things, okay? Three things this morning. Let's consider what these three short verses tell us about number one, becoming a certain kind of person. Number two, submitting to the will of God. I'm going to have these on the screen in just a minute as we go through. And number three, living these out without limits. Living these out without limits. So three things. First of all, number one, think with me about becoming a certain kind of person. Becoming a certain kind of person. Notice first that Paul has called his readers to three distinct actions. Did you see that? Look over that huge verse, those verses, that huge section that we were just looking at. What does it say? To rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Right? Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Those three things are what he's called his readers to do. Think for a moment in your mind's eye about how you would put those commands into practice. What would it look like for you to be fulfilling those commands? And remember, we believe that this, this man named the Apostle Paul had been visited by Jesus. His life was he, was, he was a Jesus hater. He was trying to persecute Christians. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to him, got a hold of his life, and radically changed his life. A, a, a complete 180 in this man's life. Therefore, as God was working on him and in him, 
God was working through him to bring God's word to us. We believe God inspired these words. So God's communicating to us this morning through these words, right? We never want to assume, I never want to assume that. We always want to make sure that we understand we're hearing from God, not just a history lesson from 2,000 years ago. What does he say? Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. What would it look like for you to put those into practice? Maybe, for example, look at verse 16. Maybe you can picture yourself praising God using some joyful language or a, a song that you're singing that's a joyful song. Maybe for verse 17, you imagine yourself kneeling by your bedside in the morning or before you go to bed. Maybe you imagine yourself praying over someone who's in need. Maybe for verse 18, you can see yourself going through a list for, of things for which to be thankful. Or maybe you picture like a Thanksgiving and you've got a family practice of maybe putting a little Thanksgiving tree. You each put like a write something and kind of put it on a little thing. It hangs or you pass cards around that have things you're thankful for. I don't know. If those line up with you, what you had in mind when I encourage you to picture yourself living these commands out, there is certainly nothing wrong with any of those pictures that I just mentioned. Those are good pictures. Those are good pictures. But when we think carefully about these commands, rejoice, pray, and give thanks, and we remember the one who's writing to us here, the Apostle Paul, the one who's speaking to his readers in this way, I think it's safe to say that Paul is ultimately concerned with each of his readers becoming a certain kind of person rather than each of his readers doing certain kinds of things. Why do I say that? I say that because we know Paul. Because we hear his heart in his letters. The ones preserved for us in this collection called the New Testament. What I mean is that Paul doesn't simply want his readers to rejoice and pray and give thanks as religious exercises. Look at me, I'm praying, I'm rejoicing, I'm giving thanks. I am doing these religious things. No, 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 no. He wants his readers to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks as spiritual expressions. As outward expressions of a joyful, prayerful, thankful people. That's what joyful, prayerful, thankful people look like, right? They rejoice. They pray. They give thanks. That's a kind of a no-brainer. You get that. That's what Paul's doing. Can people simply go through the motions in terms of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks? Absolutely they can. They have and they can. And I'm guessing all of us have fallen into that trap before. Right? It comes around to you. What are you thankful for? Oh, 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 I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for my family. Now, you just were put on the spot and you said, you're thankful for your family. Uh, how much of that was the overflow of just deep, sincere gratitude for your family? Or did you feel on the spot? Sometimes there are pressures like that, aren't there? We, we feel pressure to do certain kinds of things because we believe they're the, the right things to do. But Paul's letters, including this one to the Thessalonians, make it clear that his first focus, just like the first focus of Jesus, was on inward spiritual change for his readers. 
That was his hope. That was his desire to see that change take place. He was clear about what that inward change should look like outwardly, and that didn't matter to him. He did talk very practically about the way that people lived, but he never wanted the way that people lived, those things to do, to take precedent, to come first before who they were, who God was making them, how they were being transformed on the inside, the change that was taking place. When our kids are little and we're raising them, we teach them, for example, the language of forgiveness, even though in so many cases we know they're not sorry. They don't want to, they don't want to be nice to their brother or sister. They're not sorry about smacking someone over the head with a Tonka truck or, you know, throwing Legos at someone. That's, that, they're not thankful, but we're teaching them the language of forgiveness, aren't we? We're teaching them the language of repentance. Of contrition. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Offer an apology. Right? Peacemaking. We're teaching them that language. But then we're hopefully also trying to work on their heart. Helping them to to have that heart come alongside of that language that they're learning. And that the two would become naturally one thing. They would be expression. We would give them. We would give voice to what God's doing in their heart. The change that's taking place in their heart. That's just basic character formation, isn't it? God does that on a meta level. He does that in an amazing way. The most, the most important ultimate level through the work of Jesus. Real spiritual change that for 2,000 years is, has transformed the lives of individuals and has transformed societies even as those individuals have been salt and light like we talked about earlier from the word. He wasn't simply calling his readers to do spiritual or religious things. He wrote to them about the inward change that expressed itself outwardly. So again, the apostles call here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, is that his readers rejoice and pray and give thanks, absolutely, but even more so that they would be joyful, prayerful, and thankful people. I also want you to see this, number two. Oh, they're all on the screen all of a sudden. Boom, there they are. Submitting to the will of God. Number two, submitting to the will of God. Notice how Paul concludes this rapid fire list of these three short commands. He says, be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, why does he say that? Why does he, why is he quick to add that? Make sure that they understand that. This topic is an interesting one, isn't it? The will of God. It's always been a topic of interest in the church, but also an an area, a topic of confusion in the church. The will of God. Christians, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, they rightly want to know and they, they want to walk in God's will for their lives. You should want that if you're a follower of Jesus. But too often discussions about God's will, prayer requests about God's will, even anxiety over God's will for, has been tied to certain life events, certain big things, certain uh, situations where you need divine clarity. You need heavenly guidance. For example, I need to know if it's God's will for me to take this new job. 
I need to know if it's God's will for me to marry this person, marry that person. I, I need to know if it's God's will that I go to this college or, or maybe not go to college and do this instead. In some cases, the search for answers to questions like these ends with uncertainty. People aren't sure. How can they know that God's telling them, giving them direction one way or the other? Is it a peace that they have? Is it a clear sense? Are they watching for signs? Are there ravens flying over? They're like, oh, don't go that way. I go this way instead. Or uh, who knows? Putting out the fleece is one of those kind of classic biblical pictures of trying to understand what God's will is here. And then when they have an uncertainty about God's will, if there's uncertainty that lingers, then what fills that vacuum is a fear that they may not be in God's will. I'm suffering the way that I'm suffering because I'm not in God's will. Nothing's working out in this relationship or this decision because I'm not in God's will. Brothers and sisters, it's right to seek God's wisdom in hard circumstances. God's word calls us to do that. We want to seek him. And we know James 1 tells us he generously gives wisdom to those who seek him in prayer. He wants to give you that wisdom. And it may be helpful to to think about and look at how God is at work in our circumstances. What is God doing? Paul saw open doors of opportunity, didn't he? He, he saw those. He saw, he saw what God might be doing. Uh, but scripture rarely speaks to believers about God's will in the way that I just described. It just doesn't. It does speak to what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 calls the counsel of his will. The counsel of his will, that is God's sovereign design in all things. God's will will be accomplished, we know that. His promises will be fulfilled. All things will be consummated in the end. His plan will be brought to fruition, right? It will happen. But, even more often in Scripture, as we see here in Thessalonians, or as we hear about in the Lord's Prayer, for example... God's will is simply that which God desires for us morally. It's what God wants for you. It's the path that God calls you to walk in terms of right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteous, unrighteousness. It's that, that's His will. What He desires for you. How He desires you to live. Listen to how Paul talked about God's will in this same way a chapter earlier. Look back, if you would, back to chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, Paul writes. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Whoa, red alert, $10,000 big religious word there. What does that even mean? Sanctification. It means set-apartness. God is setting you apart. He wants you to be set apart. Not from the way the world does things. Not being conformed to the pattern of the world. But being distinct and being like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. He's setting you apart. What does God want for you? What's His will? That you be set apart. Not be conformed to the world's way of doing things. That's unrighteousness. But to be conformed to righteousness. That's his will. But Paul gets even more specific here. And what a word for our, gener- for our world, a sexually confused world. He says, here's the will of God. Your set-apartness, specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. You want to know God's will for your life? 
abstain from sexual morality. Let's get even more specific. Paul does that. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not being controlled by the passion of lusts like the Gentiles, that word just means nations, the unbelieving nations, who do not know God. So if they want to know God's will for their life, that's one aspect of God's will, what He desires for them. Sexual purity, sexual self-control, to walk a healthy path. We're surrounded by a world that promotes one thing when it comes to sex, but is suffering so deeply because they're, they're trying to live in the confusion, the consequences of what they think is the right way. You see it all around you, right? And we get the conflicting messages from our culture about the way things should be. Why is this important to emphasize in 518? Remember, he puts it there at the end, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me, let me suggest two reasons why Paul emphasized that about rejoicing praying and giving thanks, being joyful, prayerful, thankful people. Why does he add the will of God there at the end? First of all, things like our sanctification, our set-apartness, our purity, things like being joyful, prayerful, and thankful are spiritually foundational things. They're spiritually foundational things. They help produce and support and strengthen a God-honoring lifestyle. They fuel and they shape your personal ministry when you are joyful, prayerful, thankful. That's why God desires these things for us. They are His will, what He wants for us. Second, I think Paul includes this here because your desire to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Do you desire that this morning? To be a person who's joyful, prayerful, and thankful? If you do desire that this morning, I think Paul's reminding, God's reminding us through Paul's words, just as Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, reminding his readers that that desire should flow from a desire to please God. That's where it should come from. That's what should drive it forward. Imagine wall decor, and, and it's really everywhere nowadays. Wall decor that includes those three words. Joyful, prayerful, thankful, right? It's in cute cursive script painted on distressed wood, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about, ladies, when you've been in the store. It's right there. Uh, some people want to buy that plaque. They want to hang it on their wall. They want to do that because they simply want to be that kind of person. Maybe because their grandma was that kind of person. Well, my grandma, she was joyful, prayerful, and thankful. And I'm going to put this on the wall because it reminds me of my nana. It reminds me of my mima, right? It's right up there. It's right there. Or they put it there because they are wanting, they're in a circle of people. They, they want to be accepted by a circle of people who are those kinds of people, they think. Maybe it just sounds right to them. Joyful, prayerful, thankful. That sounds right. But that, my friends, is very different from wanting to be that kind of person because God wants you to be that kind of person. And if God wants you to be that kind of person, trusting Him that if that's what He wants for you, if that's His will for you, it must be the very best thing. 
You see the difference? Paul wants to anchor his readers and say, Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. For this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for you. If there was any confusion, Paul is clarifying that. This is what God wants for you. Just like he said earlier, you want to know what God wants for you? Your sanctification. Let me be more specific. That you abstain from sexual morality. That you live in self-control, not driven by lusts. Why should we want these things? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But don't miss this, please. Paul is also writing here about a third idea. Living these out without limits. Living these out without limits. Listen again to what Paul, to what all of these short, simple, and straightforward commands have in common. Ready? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Did you hear that common thread? Did you hear it? Always without ceasing in all circumstances. Paul is qualifying each of these commands, isn't he? He's qualifying each of these commands. He qualifies them in light of the possible limitations that we may be tempted to place on things like rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. And we all do it. We all do it. I think you understand those temptations. Let me spell them out for you. Paul seems to be saying this in this very short, terse little way he's expressing this. The heart behind it, this is what I hear. Thessalonians, I know it's tempting to only rejoice when things are going well in your life, when things are going your way, but God is calling you to always rejoice. Always rejoice. And I know that you may be tempted, brothers and sisters, to only pray when you're in trouble. When you need something from God. And I know it's tempting to not pray when you don't see your prayers being answered when and how you want them to be answered. But God is calling you to pray all the time. All the time. And not to give up on prayer. And I know you may be tempted to be thankful when the blessings seem abundant and not when the blessings are difficult to see. When things are hard, painful, and confusing in your life. But God wants you to be thankful in any and every circumstance of your life. You see? You see what he's saying? Why this, this woven thread connecting these three short, simple words are? Paul has already revealed to us something about the circumstances... In which the Thessalonians found themselves. Give thanks in all circumstances. What do we know about the circumstances of this church? Well, we know this. Take a look on the screen. We know that it says, You received the word in much affliction. When Paul brought the gospel to them and was, was teaching them about what it means to know Jesus, to receive life from Jesus, and live for Jesus... It wasn't easy. They were going through affliction. They were being persecuted. Look at this next, this next verse there on the screen. 
This is 2.14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. The Jewish believers. How did they imitate them? They became imitators. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They were persecuted for their beliefs. They were mocked. They were humiliated. They were treated unfairly, unjustly because of this new faith that they had in Jesus. Just as the Jewish Christians were from their Jewish communities. Look at 4.13. We do not want you to be... Apparently some in in the faith family of this church, this young church, some had already died. They had suffered loss. I don't know if these people were killed as a part of persecution. I don't know if they died of natural causes. We don't know. We just know that Paul is writing to them and they're having a hard time. He says in 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's in the sleep of death. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. These are the circumstances. This church is suffering. They're struggling. They're hurting. For a number of reasons. But in spite of those circumstances, in fact, in all circumstances, these Christians could and should give thanks. They could and should pray. They could and should rejoice. Joyful, prayerful, thankful. Do those words describe you this morning? That's what I believe God would would want you to ask yourself. Do these words describe me? Joyful, prayerful, thankful. Think about the world for a second. Can you think of people just out there in the world? Maybe it's a a general kind of uh, sense you have about society in general, that there's lots of joyful, prayerful, thankful people out there. Run into them every day, right? No, we know this isn't true. We know that our world is struggling. We know that we struggle to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful, don't we? We see it all around us. Maybe the more important question, maybe the more convicting question is this, am I joyful, prayerful, and thankful in all things at all times. That's a harder question, isn't it? It's one thing for Paul to instruct his readers to rejoice and pray and give thanks. Things they could do if they showed up at church on a Sunday morning and said, Woo! Yeah! I feel like garbage, but woohoo! I'm going to sing and I'm going to kind of go through the motions here. It's one thing to instruct his readers to do that, but it's quite another thing to call them to these things as a lifestyle, as a regular pattern of their lives, no matter what they are facing, no matter how they feel. And there's the rub, right? There's the rub. That's the struggle. What if I don't feel like it? What if I don't feel joyful? What if I don't feel prayerful? What if I don't feel thankful? Would Paul, what would Paul want me to do? What does God want me to do? Fake it until I make it? Is that the strategy? If I feel depressed or despairing, Should I simply try as hard as I can to generate feelings of joy because that's what God wants me to do? 
If I don't feel like praying, is God really honored if I pray but my heart isn't in it? And if I don't feel thankful, is Paul telling me to pull myself by, by the bootstraps and simply run through a list of things for which I could and maybe should give thanks just to do it? Because somehow that's going to realign me that will eventually make me thankful? What if I feel so bad and life feels so hard and everything feels so heavy that joyfulness, prayerfulness, and thankfulness are the furthest things from my heart? That's real life, isn't it? That's real life. First of all, let me say this to you. Those are great questions. And if that's how you feel this morning, God wants you to ask those questions of Him. God wants you to bring those questions to Him. He wants you to be honest with yourself. Right? He already knows everything. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, God. He's like, oh, thanks. Great. <laughs> I, need, I was hoping you are going to be honest with me. He already knows the truth. He wants you to be honest with yourself. Those are questions about your heart. And he wants you to consider your heart in all honesty and sincerity. And he wants you to trust that he has answers to your questions. And that he's big enough to change that kind of heart. Do you believe that this morning? That God can change that heart when life feels hard, when life feels heavy, when you feel depressed and despairing, when you're riddled with anxiety? Do you believe God can change your heart? Do you believe He can work from the inside out? Come to Him. Talk to Him. Stop beating yourself up because you're not doing, doing, doing the right things. I'm not rejoicing. I'm not praying. I'm not giving thanks. Instead, stop and come to Him. Bring those things to Him. Number two, second, Paul's letter to this church provides us with ultimate truth. The kind of truth that inspires a joyful, prayerful, and thankful heart in all things at all times. You want to know where a joyful, prayerful, thankful heart comes from? It comes from ultimate truth. That's where it comes from. Ultimate truth. For example, Paul wanted them to give thanks in all circumstances, right? He said that. Give thanks in all circumstances. He said that not because every aspect of every circumstance in their life was a gift from God. It was not. He said that because every circumstance included something for which they could be thankful when it seems bleak to you right now and you think of the circumstances in your life, the painful, the hard ones, maybe the ones you're hiding away from others, there is something in that circumstance for which you can be thankful this morning. I say that with certainty because of the Word of God. If you stop and you look at your life, let me give you an example here from Thessalonica. Think about last week's message. God was not calling them to be thankful for their mistreatment at the hands of their neighbors. God, I just want to say thank you so much 
you know, for getting slapped and beaten around. And thank you that my job was taken from me because I wouldn't bow down to that idol, the idol that's over our trade guild, because I was called names and slandered. Thank you for that, God. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. He was calling them to be thankful, for example, for the word of God that gave them hope in the face of such hostility. That word that he said in 2.13 was at work in you believers. It was at work. How do we know he's talking about that? Look at the next verse, 2.14. For you became imitators. You endured affliction. You stood up to that opposition. Right? You endured for the glory of God. You can be thankful for that, that the word was at work inside of you in that way. We are not thankful because every circumstance, every aspect of every circumstance is a gift from God. We are thankful because in every circumstance, there is included something for which we can be thankful. Because God is at work. Just think about the ultimate truth, the joy-inspiring truth, the prayer-inspiring truth, the gratitude-inspiring truth to which Paul pointed these believers 2,000 years ago and to which God is pointing us this morning. This is just a simple selection from this book, this one little letter, 1 Thessalonians. Multiply that by all of Paul's letters, by all of Peter and John and the other writers of the New Testament. Draw those out and you get, to, you get a beautiful picture painted in front of you of ultimate truth. Here's just the ones from 1 Thessalonians. The joy of the Holy Spirit was at work in them. Chapter 1, verse 6. The joy of the Holy Spirit of God was at work in them. Wow. That's a picture that we need to see. That's a reality that we need to be sensitized to. Here's another one. They no longer served dead idols, but now a living and true God. Chapter 1, verse 9. Wow, that's prayer inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> if you know you're no longer just bowing down in front of a statue, that you're actually coming before a living and true God, that should be a prayer inspiring. Boy, that would be joy inspiring too. In fact, that would be gratitude inspiring, wouldn't it? They were waiting for Jesus, chapter 1 tells us. They were waiting for Jesus who would return, the one who had beaten death. The one who delivers us from the wrath, from the judgment to come. Chapter 1, verse 10. If you believe that, if you really believe that a man named Jesus rose from the dead, and in him you can beat death yourself, you can have eternal life, you can be in God's presence forever and know the joy of fellowship with him, the joy of eternal life, and that in this world, even though you're struggling right now, He is returning. He is coming back. It is our blessed hope. How, how, could that, how would that not change things? How would that not give you a reason to rejoice, pray, and give thanks in every circumstance at all times? This God, in fact, had called them into His own kingdom and glory. Imagine receiving an invitation into the King's palace 
into his great glory where you are resplendently decked in robes, gold, a crown placed on your head. Can you imagine being brought into the king's kingdom? He has called you in Christ into his kingdom and his glory, 2.12. His word was at work in them, 2.13. Another way that God was at work among them and the way his word was working is that chapter 4, verse 9 tells us that God himself was teaching them to love one another. Love was increasing in their church. It was growing because of the Holy Spirit, because God was at work in their midst. Furthermore, those who had died as believers, those who have died as believers, will come with him when Jesus returns. And it says in 4.17, we who are alive, who are left on that day, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with Jesus. Always. Wow. Talk about joy inspiring. <laughs> I don't care what's happening in your life. You know Jesus is coming back for you and you're going to be with him forever. You always have a reason to rejoice. Always. You see, when it came to their future, when it comes to your future, believer, God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation, deliverance, rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 9. What does that mean? Well, Paul spells it out. Take a look at your text. Take a look at your text. Drop down a few verses past our main text. Here's chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That is, set you apart completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, that's all of you, that's all of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like an exhortation. It sounds like a, a command, a call. He's wishing that they would do that. But look what he adds to this in verse 24. He who calls you, the one who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, chapter 2, verse 12, the one who calls you, he is faithful, he will surely do it. He will surely do what? He will surely sanctify you completely. He who began a good work in you will complete it for the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1. God doesn't start in someone that he's not going to finish him. God is not going to bring someone to his family that he's not going to bring all the way home. When God saves you, he not only saves you from his wrath that you've rightly deserved, he not only saves you from the power of the world and devil, he saves you from yourself. I want a God who will save me from myself. That's a true savior. That's true change that I need to be freed, truly freed and liberated from the power of Sin. He will surely do it. When our feelings, brothers and sisters, friends, when our feelings are only informed by what is temporary and earthly, and that is us most of the time, your feelings are being informed by what's happening in your circumstances around you, temporary, earthly things. When that's taking place, being joyful, prayerful, and thankful will be exactly that. Temporary and earthly. That's it. But when we seek a perspective corrective from God, we need a perspective corrective, don't we? 
from God. And he reminds us of these things, of what is eternal, of what God has done, is doing, and will do, what no one can ever alter, what no one can ever take from us. Then, and only then, do we find inspiration and power to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful in all things at all times. Amen? That's the point where you say amen right there, right? That's an amazing truth. Think about it. We can rejoice always. We can pray without ceasing. We can give thanks in all circumstances because Jesus always lives. Because the Holy Spirit without ceasing is at work in us. And because God's grace is sufficient in all circumstances. Friends, there are no checkout lane commands in God's word. There are no things at the end of the book that you kind of go, ah, yeah, I'm going to the next book. I'm past the meaty parts. I'm moving on. No, 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 no. No. These short, simple, and straightforward instructions that we find here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 are powerful calls to walk as joyful, prayerful, and thankful people in light of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. When we don't feel it, we seek it, the gospel, right? When you don't feel these things, seek him, seek the gospel. When we, that's why we find these commands here at the end of the letter, because we needed everything that came before this to inform us, to inform a Jesus-centered, a gospel-rich perspective, so that even when we don't feel like it, we can go to God and find that change. That transformation for which Jesus died. You want that change this morning in your life? Don't try to just don't try to generate it to be that kind of person. You know, don't stand in front of that wall plaque on distressed wood and cute cursive letters. Joyful, prayerful, thankful. Instead, talk to God and say, God, show me with new eyes the beauty of ultimate truth, what Christ has done how he changes a life. And let that inspire me to joy, to prayer, to thankfulness in all things at all times. Would you pray with me?